Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week, we are talking about market timing. What is it? Why it can be destructive? And what to do about it now in light of current valuations and whether or not the advice we have is still relevant. This is really a continuation of the Investment Manifesto episode we did a couple weeks back. We wanted to harp on this point, especially because we get this question a lot in light of where the market is and and the Fed and money printing and everything like that. So we just wanted to take some time to to dial it in. But to start at the 10,000 foot view, what is market timing? Market timing is essentially making a short-term speculation about the direction of the stock market and going all in or all out in light of that. And and there's degrees to which you can do that, but the fundamental idea is it's it's a short-term trading strategy. Uh, You typically wouldn't do it for extended periods of time, but making a decision based on short-term sentiment, what you think, what the economic outlook is, any data over a really small period of time. Justin, what would you add to that? Uh, I think the definition, when you think about a short term, that's the key key part of that definition. And if it is a short term speculation on the stock market, you could also take a uh, different view or an or a advanced or expanded view where it is a short term speculation on either the stock market. It could be a specific mutual fund. It could be a specific sector within the stock market. It could also be a specific stock. And so it's easy to think, uh, when you hear the term market timing, it, it's gotten a pretty bad rap. Uh, there is kind of some negative connotations. And so a lot of people just think, well, that is not me. I am not a market timer. I would not do that. And I think it's a lot more tempting and a lot more people do it than they realize. And so any sort of short-term uh, temptation there, I think, really hits the hits the nail on the head. Now, I want to give a little bit of a context for this conversation. So the reason we like to talk about investment behavior a lot is because there is a pretty large gap between what an investment uh, gives you, the the market return of a fund or an index, uh, and what typical investors who are investing in that fund actually get. And so that has been coined a behavior gap. Carl Richards uh, wrote a book and and has some uh, pretty extensive work on the topic. So the idea that a market, say it's the S&P 500, let's pretend that it returns 12% in a given year. A lot of investors who invested in that actual index, in a simple index fund, tracking that index that made 12% per year, they only made 7 8% in that same index. And so the question is, how does that happen? Uh, How could an investment give you 12% and investors in that actual investment only make 8%? Why why does that gap exist? And Morningstar, Vanguard, Dalbar, mountains of research, several different investment firms have put out huge amounts of data around this. And they all agree there's a gap. An investment will give you X. Typical investors only get an X minus three or four. Uh, points. And so why is that? And, and market timing is a big reason. And I know you've got some great examples um, of of how that's happened in real life as well. 
Yeah, that's so Justin's first point is really important. Behavior gap is one of the reasons why it does not work. And intuitively, if you take a step back and think about it, it makes sense because the best time to buy equities are when prices are depressed because the future outcomes and the return on that invested capital is, you know, statistically higher. And when prices are really high, you know, it, that may be best time to take de-risk or take money off the table, but intuitively that makes sense. But behaviorally, it feels tough when, when things are going up, it's easy to feel like you're missing out GameStop and all the, the run up and crypto are prime examples of it. They're getting all the headlines and people, you know, there've been a few people who've made a lot of money, but you know, a lot of people have lost money speculating, but, but the fear of missing out is such a, such a real thing. And then when markets are depressed and you just want to stop the bleeding. So behaviorally, it makes sense as to why people would do this, even, even though it's detrimental to, to their portfolio performance. I think, you know, to put some meat on the bone that Justin was talking about of people underperforming uh, something they invest in. One of the greatest examples of this is Peter Lynch. He was the manager of Fidelity's Magellan Fund uh, through late mid mid to late 80s and early 90s. And maybe I think even into the early 2000s. And I think there was a 10 year stretch where it returned over 20%. And his average investor lost money. We'll link to the article that talks about it in the show notes, but the average investor lost money. And why is that? How is that possible? People were piling money in as returns were going up and they were taking money out as it was going down. And those were actually the best times to invest. And it's really difficult to discern. One of the reasons why market timing is is hard is, you know, there's a question, have, am I invested in a bad strategy or is my strategy out of favor? If you look at the best investors uh, and the reason why you're diversified is everyone will underperform at some point in their career, in their lifetime compared to another benchmark. Underperformance is not an option. It, if you're a thoughtfully diversified investor, it will always happen. But the question that people have to answer is, is it because my strategy is bad or is it just because it's out of favor and things will ebb and flow and it'll eventually come back? But a lot of people abandon ship at the worst time and they get on board at the worst time. So that's that's really why that behavior gap matters. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. That Peter Lynch example is uh, really something because you think about a fund like Peter Lynch is making, let's say it made 20% in a few different years. Well, that 20%, it wasn't a checking account, right? It, it wasn't a CD. It wasn't a bond. So it wasn't giving you 5% each quarter, slowly building up. Uh, no, there would have been months where that fund was up 12%, up 28%, and then down 14%. And so it really, it was such a bumpy ride. And that is why, even though the fund itself, if all you did was just buy it and then delete your password, that that would have been the strategy there, right? Don't allow yourself to access that account. Or I guess if we're talking 1988, maybe delete the phone number from your phone book or something. But uh, that would be the strategy. Just buy it. Don't do anything. But it's a lot harder when you're seeing it go up 28% and then lose 24% and back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. But really, you know, kind of what we're talking about this behavior piece is really the first kind of point we want to make as to why market timing doesn't work. But really the second point, Justin, you kind of alluded to, it's the lumpiness of returns. It's the idea that averages aren't normal or helpful. And we have a ton of data that we'll just kind of shotgun out here but it but essentially this idea is that the up days and the down days it, it moves and it ebbs and it flows and there's really no rhyme or reason and such a high percentage of investment returns are driven by a few number of days 
Yes. So you think about really short surges, really small windows of time where there's just a burst in the market. Most people don't realize those little surges in the market where it goes up in a short period of time and a great amount of positive return. Those surges are responsible for a huge amount of long-term returns. This is one episode where if you haven't checked out our show notes, we would encourage it. There's going to be some really uh, helpful uh, graphs, links to articles, some really, really interesting data. But uh, one of the one of the staples, if you're going to be a long-term investor, there's a graph that Fidelity's done this, Dimensional has done this, that it shows that what is the market returned since 1990 or 1980, and then it maps out what if you missed the best five days in the market? What if you miss the best 25 days in the market? And I know since 1980, if you miss the best five days in the market, you actually wiped away half of your return. And so you think about the impact of something like that. I think they're kind of an interesting analogy. If we make a parallel on this point and how it relates to, I I think a great analogy is football. Uh, So I grew up in Kansas and high school football in Kansas, not nearly as intense as Texas. I didn't even play football. I I was a basketball player growing up. But my hometown had a very, very famous football recruit. And so he went to a rival high school and I was actually uh, several years younger. So I was 10 or 11 years old at this time, but I will never forget this uh, because there was so much buzz around town. And I remember going to the game to see him for the first time. And everyone said, this is Barry Sanders. This is, I mean, this is, this guy is just like Barry Sanders. He is going to be a superstar. And uh, fortunately for me, I'm a huge Kansas State fan. That's where I went to school. He ended up committing to Kansas State and just had a unbelievable career, Heisman finalist. And I'm talking about Darren Sproles. And so had a, I think he had a 17, 18 year career in the NFL, something like that. I think he's second in NFL history for total yards, all purpose yards. So unbelievable career. But the thing about Darren Sproles that was really fun in high school. I mean, that's like, it was as if he was playing against elementary kids. Uh, He was just on a completely different level. But Darren Sproles, if you've seen him play, he would make one cut. He was the quickest uh, football player since Barry Sanders. I think everyone would agree on that point. And so he would always break off. I mean, almost every game, he would break off a 50, 60, 70 yard touchdown run. And especially in high school, I mean, there would be four or five of these every game. It was unbelievable. But when you watched him play, it wasn't as if a 60 yard run, not all 60 of those yards were equal by any means. He wasn't, in fact, he really wasn't doing much of anything from yard five to yard 75. Because the entire play was bottled up. The entire play was captured in a five-yard window where he made a cut and he made two defenders missed. And then the field, the seas parted. The field was wide open and Darren Sproles was gone. You think about how that compares to how the market works, and that's exactly what it is. If you are a defense trying to stop Darren Sproles, you've got to stop that one cut. Because if you don't stop that one cut, it's it's not like you have a second chance 10 yards later. No, he made the defenders miss. He, he's gone. He's 60 yards down the field. And in the market, it's the same thing. If you want to capture the incredible market return that, it, that the market has given over the last century plus, you can do that, but you've got to be in there. You have to be in there when the surge happens. And one of the really difficult parts of investing, we don't know when the surge is going to happen. 
We don't know when that small burst is. If you go back to the analogy, we don't know when the Darren Sproles like cut or juke on the defender is going to happen. But when it does, if you are not a part of it, you've missed it. And you're not able to go back and, and recapture that. And so, so much of the market returns long-term happen in short windows of time. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Justin, I really like that analogy. It's like trying to pick the best fantasy player versus trying to pick the play they're going to bust a touchdown, right? In terms of in terms of market timing, just knowing that there will be bursts just because of, of their talent and ability, but just putting them on your team and knowing that they're going to get the yards you need eventually. You just don't know in which shape or form or how lumpy it's going to be. But yeah, it's getting back to that chart that Justin was talking about of the cost of trying to time the market. If you missed, so for over a 20 year period from 1990 to 2020, if you missed the 25 best days, you ended up with $4,376. If you invested $1,000, if you invested $1,000 and just left all that money in there, you would have $20,451. So nearly 5X what you have. And if you think about a 20 year period, the number of trading days, thousands of trading days, and you merely miss the 25 best and your terminal wealth is a fraction of what it would have been. This is just such an important idea and such a misunderstood idea. And to bring this all together and talk about how we think about it, it's really time diversification. We don't know which days are going to be the best. And one of the big underpinnings of our investment philosophy is is humility and diversification, right? Because we don't know what geography is going to do well when we're just long-term believers in global equity markets and capitalism and innovation. And so the best way to get exposure to all those is to own a little bit of everything. That way you always own the best performing and, and thereby the worst performing. So this being long-term investors is really just time diversification, having the humility to identify, hey, I don't know which day or week or month or year is is going to be the best, but I'm but I'm a long term believer in in the underlying system and being an owner in these companies that are driving these innovations and moving and changing the world and going forward. That idea, time diversification. I'm surprised that that hasn't been coined and, and talked about more because that's exactly what it is. We're dealing with a market where we know there's going to be, and we have great reason to believe that there should be excellent future returns. We have no idea when they're going to come. We have no idea. We don't know when they're going to happen. If you go back to the investment manifesto, we mentioned in that episode that uh, essentially we do want to own the whole market. We're not trying to guess in, in time which parts of the market are going to do well, but we do like to tilt towards smaller companies, value companies over growth. Even within those small parts of the market, this principle holds true to a pretty emphatic level. There could be underperformance, it could lag, it could give lackluster returns for years or a decade, and then all of a sudden it booms. This is what happened last October. Uh, small cap value was uh, trailing the S&P 500 pretty substantially, and then October 1 of last year happens, and for the next six months, it makes 70%. And so you just don't know when the return is going to come but you know the return is quite likely to come. Yeah, and kind of to put a bow on this point, the intra-year gains and declines are another fascinating thing. Long-term stock market, we'll use the S&P, returned about 10% gross, so maybe 8% net of inflation, but it returns on average that amount, but rarely does it ever actually return that amount. I think there's only a handful of years out of the last 100 where it's actually returned in that range of the 8 to 10%. Usually it's much higher or lower than that. 
I saw a stat recently. So for the past 75 years in market history, there have only been, I think it was five years where the market return actually fell in between eight and 10% or something close to that. And so even though the average return is eight, nine, 10% a year, whether you're going net of inflation or pure, it's not giving you that. Again, this is not like a CD. It's not like a checking account where you get interest every month, every quarter, every year. Returns are happening in a small period. One last quick stat that is really fascinating. Every day in the market, average up day is something like 0.55 to 0.6%. Average down day is about 0.5% in the market. So on an average day, that's how much the market is moving. During a market crash, during a bear market, the returns are much more emphatic on both ends. So it's quite obvious you would you would expect that in a market crash, well, a, a down day is going to be a lot worse than the typical down day. And that's true. In a market crash, the average down day is negative 1% plus. But here's what a lot of people miss. In a market crash, the average up day is also really different than normal. It's much, much higher than a typical up day. So even in a market crash, the average up day is over plus 1%. And so when you think about trying to make sure you don't miss some of these really big up days, sometimes you have to really bite through the pain of a of a market crash is happening. Sometimes the best up days are going to be then. Yeah. And this is a good time to kind of transition to talking about now, right? Today, because we probably have some listeners that hear this and they say, hey, I agree with this conceptually, but everything I'm hearing from the media and the news says the US market is really expensive, people making claims about this being the top and you know, valuations being above average and above historical norms. So does does this still apply in this time, in this day, and in this age? Gosh, it's funny to think about that point because I, I think that I've been hearing people say that for almost a decade and, and not quite. But I, I remember, I think 2014, 2015 is when the market recovered to be up 25%. Thinking back to conversations that I would have with investors at my prior firm, there were a lot of people that were very concerned about a market crash back in 2014, 2015. And they had the mindset that, man, this market is expensive. Surely it's about to crash. And I want to make another quick point on that. So 2015, certainly there was some fear with investors, but 2018 is the, uh, really the, one of the first times within that incredible bull market where we had what could be counted as a market crash. I think in an intraday sense, the market went down 20%. It hit a 20% negative level in the middle of a trading day. So you, you could maybe count that as a market crash. So I remember having conversations and, and one in particular is, I, I didn't know this person very well, but I remember they wanted to sell everything and get out because that this point that we're talking about, for years, the market had felt high. They kept hearing the term all time high. And I remember this was Christmas Eve. It was December 24th. And I remember this because, I mean, I, I have a pretty emphatic conviction, a, a very strong stance that you never time the market. You never get out of the market. Um, the only time you get out of the market is if you need retirement income. And, and so that's, that's why you would sell. It's one of the few reasons why you would, you would sell. And so December 24th comes, enormous amounts of fear. 
And the market had a terrible day that day. Uh, it was down, I think, three or four percent. But I remember that because the next day's Christmas, the market's closed. But on December 26th in 2018, it was one of the highest up days that we had seen in market history up until the uh, pandemic. Uh, the market was up six, six and a half percent in one day. And so you think about all this fear, all this temptation that, hey, the market's been up for a decade. Surely the market's about to crash. It's been up for a decade and, and it's down 18, 19%. In the middle of the day, it, it hit down 20%. It is time to sell. It's time to get out. When in reality, the next day, the market was up six six and a half percent. And since that point, I believe the market has more than doubled in the few years since that time period. And so just an incredible example that the market being high right now, the market is always high. Uh, the market is always reaching new all-time highs. And that's something you need to you need to be really careful letting that thought enter your head that the market's had an all-time high. Surely it's time to this we need to take action now. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Justin's point to to go back to it of the historical price to earnings ratio, which is a very common metric, basically, you know, how much you're paying for a dollar of company earnings, because as owners of companies, you're entitled to future distributions of earnings, right? And you want companies to make money. So that's a good metric for valuating the stock market. And it's around high 15s, low 16s uh, for the S&P. When we say the market, that's just a good proxy and an example we're using. But yeah, by the year 2015, it was 25%. So up in the low, the price to earnings ratio was in the low 20s. So up 25% over its historical average, which may have been a good time to get out because, you know, in the technical sense of the term, at that point, the market was already over overvalued, but you would have missed out on one of the largest bull markets uh, in history and making multiples of your money. And just to put some more numbers about just what Justin was saying about all-time highs, this is a good good little stat from Ben Carlson. So since the great financial crisis, and this was published in uh, the end of 2020, so this is probably even greater now, but since the end of the great financial crisis in 2007, the S&P has seen 270 new all-time highs, which you know on an, on an annual basis, so 13... 270, that's almost, you know, 20 all-time highs a year. So so when you hear that as being a mechanism to get out, I wouldn't listen to that. I, I don't think I don't think that's good advice. I don't think that that's prudent advice because the economy will continue to expand and grow. So it's just it's really difficult the time of the market because you have to get two things right. You have to know when to get out and then when to get back in. You hear horror stories about people who got out at the at the bottom and and haven't gotten back in or haven't waited back in or have money sitting on the sidelines and and all they've done is erode their purchasing power while assets have continued to rise. That is really something. If, if you personalize that, I think it's helpful to think through in your situation. If you're worried about an all-time high as an investor, for the past decade, a new all-time high has come about every two to three weeks. So not even, even faster than once a month. Almost every other week, we have seen a new all-time high. That is an incredible statistic. This is the case for global diversification as well. So, you know, like we're, like we talked about being big fans of time diversification, we're big fans of geography and market diversification. So that stat we give you about that appreciated S&P valuation, that was one market and one, one size and one component of the market. Valuations look very different all across the globe. So that's another another case. And I know this is about market timing, but 
to combat market timing. The best way to combat it is to be thoughtfully diversified, right? Across time, across geography, across company size. So really having a thoughtful diversification plan really helps with that. That's such a good point. Uh, because I, here, here's the thing. I do empathize. I understand that it is a scary proposition to have a tremendous amount of your money invested and know that, hey, the market is really high. But one helpful solution to that is to, well, in our case, what we would tell our clients is that great news. We don't have all of your, all of our money, all of your money in the S&P 500. We actually have significant exposure in markets that are not nearly as uh, highly priced as the US large cap market. But again, I, I think that that point that you made, Jared, about time diversification, we know that excellent returns are out there and, and we expect excellent returns in the coming years. We have no idea when they're going to happen. Yeah. A long-term that this is the game to be in. And when you hear any, anybody with short-term saying, hey, move to cash, I would, I would encourage you to look at their track record. There's a lot of people in our profession. It's easy to doom and gloom. It gets the headlines. It, you know, it sells, fear sells. And so, you know, anytime you hear that, I would look at the track record of somebody and you'll see a lot of people, even who may have predicted, had a call that was right. If you look at the body of evidence, they've been wrong more times than they've been right. And so it's important to right size that. I saw a famous author on Twitter uh, the other week and real famous financial author. He had predicted a market crash every single year for the past 12 years. And what's difficult is it is really important as an investor to read some excellent books about investing and really get a, a baseline of knowledge because you can hear those things and they can sound really scary, but then it gets even scarier when, hey, at some point he's going to be right, <laughs> right? I mean, if you, if you predict a market crash every year, it's kind of the broken clock deal. And it's important to understand that Hey, market corrections, a correction in the market historically happens almost every year. A market crash happens almost every five to seven years. And so again, personalize it. So think about your situation. Not only is it possible that you could continue to invest in an all-time high uh, every two to three weeks, that could happen. That's So don't be afraid of all-time highs. But also think about the worst case scenario with market corrections, market crashes, and personalize it. Not only does a market correction, that's a 10% drop in the market, not only does that happen almost every year, but in your situation, if you are 60 years old today, it's possible you could live through 35 more market corrections. And if a crash, a 20% drop in the market, so correction, 10% drop, a crash, full on 20% drop or worse, those happen every five to seven years. Again, if you are 60 years old, it is possible you could live through six, seven, eight more market crashes. Not something to fear. It is something to plan for, but it's not something to fear. That's right. And so, you know, to kind of close it out. So the antidote to market timing is one, it's diversification, right? And time diversification and, and, and some of those points we talked about, but a couple of other tools we should mention to our listeners is prudent risk management. So rebalancing is a great example of that. So your investment allocation should ref reflect your tolerance of risk. Volatility is a function of the market. It's not a bug. So it will continue to happen. So knowing that your behavior will want you to sell at the bottom, you have to under you have to develop a investment allocation that is in line with your ability to take on risk and endure risk. Because the last thing you want to do is sell at the bottom, right? So continuing to just think through, okay, what is my risk allocation? But notice that'll change over time. So if you, so for example, if you were a 50-50 investor, 
in 2015, 50% bonds, 50% stocks. After this big run-up in the market, your allocation would be closer to 80-20. So your risk profile on those dollars, if you didn't rebalance it or or move back to your target investment allocation, would have drifted to somewhere you may have not intended. So having a thoughtful risk management plan and considering rebalancing to that to ensure that your allocation is in line with your risk tolerance really matters. And the second point I would add is dollar cost averaging. So kind of like what Justin talked about, you're going to be buying at all-time highs. You're going to be bu- you're going to be also be buying at all-time lows, which is a great function and just a good way to take your behavior out of it. One of the great things that's come of the 401k plan is just automatic investment. Every bi-weekly pay period, you you are investing a certain amount of your money into the market and hopefully it's it's diversified and prudently managed, but you are putting that money in irrespective of where the valuations are. And you're actually buying, because the dollar amount is the same, you end up buying more shares when the price is lower and less shares when the price is higher. So those are two kind of great tips in addition to just being thoughtfully diversified or things that you should think about as you're thinking about your situation and and how to combat market timing because it's human to want to do that. That's right. And I think the last thing I would say, if you are listening to this and you're retired, you're probably thinking, well, dollar cost averaging isn't in, that's not in your plans because you're no longer in a 401k saving every two weeks. In our next episode, we're going to address that. And your retirement income plan can create that same ability to not worry about crashes and to even take advantage with rebalancing and uh, continue to uh, weather volatility. And so we'll, we'll really dive into that into our next episode. Thanks for joining us again. As always, if you have any questions or ideas for future episodes, send us something podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.